So, Berto, I have a bunch of emails. Let's read them and answer them. What do you say? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I sell broken cell phones. So, this first email is from someone wanting to us to talk about Brian Laundrie and Gabby Petito. Do, do you know? Oh, yes. So, what do you know about situation. that? Well, let me, let me give a summary, and then... Yeah. So... If you don't know about it, there's a boyfriend and girlfriend, Brian and Gabby, and they're in their early 20s. I think Gabby's 22, and they're engaged, and they're from Florida, I believe, and they're on a road trip in a camper van across the United States, and they're taking a few months to travel from east to west, and Gabby, a young, you know, conventionally attractive 22-year-old white woman, is trying to become an Instagram influencer. Not in the Kylie Jenner sense, but more in like the lifestyle sense, the, yeah. the travel sense, you know? And so, uh, although she wasn't, she didn't really have a lot of followers, that was her goal. She was trying to get followers, essentially. Right. And she'd take all these cute pictures. And, and I'm not saying that facetiously, like, you know, some, some real cute pictures of her and and Brian at Arches National Park, you know, these kinds of places. And then she disappeared one day, and the internet, there's a lot of details of this. You can watch a lot of summaries, but essentially she disappears. The internet exploded, and there was so much data to pour over from the internet because she had all these Instagram posts, and so did he. And a lot of these Instagram posts or wherever she was put, maybe even on a website or something, there are timestamps and... Um, GPS stamps on a lot of these photos, you know? So people were pulling together all these different, all this data to like figure out like, did Brian kill her? What happened to Gabby Petito? And suddenly, you know, Reddit's ablaze and the, you know, there's all these reports, like there's this woman that's missing. And this 911 video shows up of, uh, police responding to the two of them uh, uh, allegedly in a domestic violence incident. And the police are interviewing Brian, they're interviewing Gabby, and uh, they have essentially not really, they they seem to address it uh, somewhat, and then they basically let him go. And everyone's like, what if Gabby's dead and Brian killed her and the police were there? You know, it's all this kind right. of stuff. And, and by the way, caveat, it, this is another example of missing white woman syndrome in that when a white woman disappears, there's like so much uh, uh, coverage, not necessarily of every white woman that disappears. But if if there's a a woman that disappears and it you know becomes a huge news story that's plastered all over CNN and everywhere, it's almost always a white woman. Whereas when a, a woman of color disappears, like no one cares. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... That was happening. And then there's this whole set of shady behavior by Brian and his parents where the Brian's parents weren't really cooperating and Brian wasn't cooperating with the authorities. Her body was eventually found and they're like, oh, no, OK, she was murdered by strangulation. They found then Brian disappears because he's the person of interest, right, because he was presumably the last person with her and, you know given the 911 video could have been the person who killed her and he disappears and he's this really good hiker apparently and he disappeared into 
the Florida swamps, and there was this huge you know man search for him. Is that the term man search? <laughs> Manhunt. Manhunt. Yeah. And the Florida swamps are riddled with huge crocodiles. Yeah. <laughs> or are they crocodiles? Are they alligators? alligators or cro- yeah. yeah. Was, <laughs> one um, of those beasts. Yeah. Uh, and everyone is thinking he might, might have, you know, gotten out of the country or he could live in the wilderness for years or... Maybe he is with a friend or, you know, it's just all this speculation. Where is he? The Internet's ablaze. And then they found his dead remains, yeah. skeletal remains, yeah. because the animals had picked him over. And it seemingly was a gunshot to the head, uh, self-inflicted. So was that your memory? What did, yep. When you heard this story, what did you think about the Brian Laundrie gra- grabby, grabby? So the potato? first thing I heard and saw was that they had been stopped by the cops and that uh, she had been crying and it seemed like some sort of domestic dispute uh, and that there seemed to be violence, but that somehow inexplicably the cops had just let them go. Uh, and then she went missing. Um, and so, of course, it was like, well, that's highly suspicious. Uh, then he goes missing, which I thought was predictable. Then the parents go like missing and were kind of evading the authorities too. Right. The parents of the guy. Um. So yeah, I I just I think from the moment I heard this the the first part of the story, even before she was found and before he went missing, my instinct was like that didn't end well. Yeah. So we'll never know what happened because unless someone was around videotaping this whole thing, yeah, uh, we can only speculate as to what happened. Now there have been many other stories that we can speculate and use as a baseline for what might have happened, which is he was a violent person controlling and they had a volatile relationship and he would become violent and they were having a lot of fights. It was escalating. It was getting worse. It was getting worse. It was getting worse. And then one day he, and maybe he even had this thought over time, like I'm just going to kill her. Yeah. You know, that, that that happens a lot of times. It sometimes can be uh, spontaneous, but it often isn't. It usually is a thought that kind of builds or a thought of like, I'm just going to strangle her and make her understand that she needs to shut up, you know, those kinds of attitudes, and then you take it too far. So uh, then the murder happens, right. and, then it, and, then it, and then, it, then the person's like, oh, crap, what do I do? And this is why movies about murderers are so generally inaccurate in that most people who murder do not think about what they're going to do after they mm. they're just thinking about what's happening right in yeah. front of their face and they're terrible at covering up the crime and he was he didn't have an alibi there was no one else around yeah these aren't like Planned mob hits. <laughs> right. It, there are other ways that he, if he was calculated, he could have dispo- He could have even tried to dispose of the body. I don't even think he tried to do that. You know, I think he just maybe just dumped it off near a river. I don't know. Who knows? I, maybe I'm wrong about that. But the point is, is that I think what could have happened was he was like, oh, crap, what do I do? And then he just, he tried to cover his tracks by uh, texting from her phone you know there are there are posts where right, kind of yeah. mysterious like after what seemingly might have been the time when she died and then he just drove home and i'm guessing he probably told his parents and his parent and they probably had a long talk of like well what do we do and the parents are 
terrified. Mm-hmm. You know, they were probably having a huge dilemma and, you know, confused and know what to do. And then, and then he just said, I'm just going to disappear. And then he disappears. And then after a while, he's just like, and he probably had already thought, cause this often can happen. You know, if, when you're the, the depths of your despair of like, I can't believe what I just did. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm my life is ruined. Uh, I might as well just kill myself, I guess, you know, and then that feeling builds and then, and then you do it. And so it seems, who knows? We'll never know because we can't interview yeah, him. We can't right. interview Gabby. No one else was around them during this time. It reminded me a bit, of course there's a billion infinite di- differences, but uh, I was reminded of the Anand, uh, what was his name? The oh, Adnan. Adnan? Yeah. Adnan? From Serial. Serial, yeah. Um, because there was so much uncertainty and like, we never knew even at the end of serial, it's like, what happened? Right. Yeah. I mean, someone else could have been involved in the murder. Right. Uh, It doesn't seem likely. Yeah. And this one, I guess, because we got some answers of like, okay, he did run away and then he seems to have killed himself. So I guess that points, but you know, still. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) If I had to put a bet, of I course, would say right. he murdered her. And I would have done that from the beginning of the story, but... I wouldn't. You know, in the beginning of the story, I was still... I mean, likely that was what happened, because that's... You, you talk to a police officer, like, oh, yeah. it's usually the boyfriend or the husband, you know? Yeah. But I was still like, oh, I don't know, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. Maybe there's a maybe there's a story there. But the to the point that you said earlier about, you know, the police should have done X, Y, and Z... The way that the law works is, and I'm not an expert on this, but I've worked closely with these people, is when there's a domestic disturbance uh, call and the police show up, they conduct an interview, a fact-finding mission, and there are these key sort of uh, flowchart distinctions. And what they're supposed to avoid is gender. You know, they're not supposed to say, well, it's always the guy's fault. Yeah. Because they know that it often is, but they know that they shouldn't, you know, they've been trained. Just because there's a woman does not mean she's not the perpetrator. And she had hit him or something, right? Right. So yeah. so the, the flow chart does not say man or woman. It just says person A, person B. Mm-hmm. And so the interview, when they show up, they ask questions to her of who hit who. And she said, and it's all on the badge cam, I hit him. Right, right. And, did, and they ask her, did he hit you? She said, no. Now, you would also say, if you're a domestic violence expert, you'd, you would know that if you're a victim, you're afraid to admit that. But there's only so much police can do in situations like that. You know what I mean? Could they have done more? Yeah. Should they have done more? I don't know, because... These kinds of calls are, you know, they take potentially a precinct will take dozens of these a day. And if every time they're just like, okay, we've got to like do, we've got to cross all our T's and you know, it would take, it would take away from other police work that they have to get done. You know, there's only so many police officers on that. They can't do everything thoroughly. They, there's going to be some corners they are going to cut and I'm right. not, I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying that there's the discourse around this is that. It's the police fault. And I'm like, what you should be uh, complaining about is procedure. Because the police, from what I can tell, they follow the procedure that they're trained with. And they're trained that procedure for reasons that are maybe not known to the public. 
Yeah, I wonder if we need like a petito law or something where uh, in cases that are ambiguous like this, without just proof or anything, there's a cool, a mandatory cool, cool well, off. But they did that. They absolutely did that. And well, that, in the moment. Yeah, like they, you stand over there. No, no, no. They said you have to stay in a different hotel. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. She, they said, they, they were like, in fact, if anything, as she's talking about her story and he's talking about his story, and you could say, well, they're lying, uh, seemingly, but the police, you know, can only do so much with what mm-hmm. they're hearing. And it's not inconsistent. Knowing what we know now, it's 2020, but at the time, they're just rolling up and that yeah, what okay, they hear, okay. what they see is this woman who is like yeah. emotionally volatile, who is describing herself as scratchy. And he had wounds. He had blood yeah, yeah. on his head from, and she had no wounds. Yeah. So if you just, if you, if you just describe the story of like police responded and person A had wounds yeah. and person B admitted to scratching and hitting person A while person A was driving and person B grabbed the wheel and swerved them into the curb. Yeah. You'd go person B is the problem. Yeah hands down but because it's gabby and she's this small woman and we know that brian likely kills her later on then we repaint the situation but they absolutely did say you have to be separated for 24 hours uh he was going to stay in the van and she was going to stay in a hotel or, or the did reverse they do that or no i think they did actually okay. i think i think i mean i don't know yeah. but I, if i remember so you know i'm not you know me when there's problems with police i'm yeah. going to point it out i've had some right. I, I, of my experiences with police in the wild i'd say 50 percent of them have been horrible like i've had horrible experiences with police officers i could detail those i police officers can be incompetent they can be uh, belligerent they can y- abuse power obviously there's plenty of examples of that so i'm not like a police apologist by any stretch of the imagination i've had arguments with police officers um, about the use of force, you know, where I make everyone uncomfortable at the dinner party and I'm for 45 minutes, I'm yelling at a police officer. <laughs> I remember this. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not a police apologist, but when it comes to this situation, you have to understand the system before you can criticize it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't know those details. And actually, for my part, I've only had good experiences with police. Really? Yeah. Surprisingly. But wow. It's true. I, and I've, you know, had several things and all of them have been positive. So I've gotten lucky, I guess. Yeah. But in spite of that, I thought from just watching the video, so I wasn't very well informed, I thought, oh, I can't believe they let them go. But, you know. But that's 2020. Yeah. The other thing, the other context that isn't, you know, known to people is that 99.999% of domestic violence calls that police respond to do not result in murder later right. on. Right. So, you know, when you roll up and and the abuse on the scale of things, it wasn't like someone had a gun and was going to shoot someone. It was a petite woman scratching her I, I, I will say, though, so even if you just go on the side of the guy, like, you could have killed them by pulling the steering wheel. Yeah. So, if anything, fine. Maybe you don't know that the guy could be a risk, but maybe she's bigger risk than, than a knight. She, but know. she seemed remorseful. So, if, yeah. again, if you're going verbatim, then she was not like, well, he deserved it. I'm going to get him. She, which some perpetrators will say when the police arrive. 
she was like, I just don't know. I'm just really upset. I don't know what I'm doing. And and, uh, so now what you can criticize is that what if there was a woman who interviewed her? What if there was a specialist in domestic violence who had interviewed her? What if it wasn't a police officer who interviewed her? Would we have gotten different information that could have saved her life? Possibly. Hard to know. So, but that's not the police. That's not their job, the individual police officers, to go, let's call in just for this one domestic violence call uh, among hundreds that we'll do this month. A specialist in domestic violence. It's not not part of their procedure. How about a new petito law? You have... To uh, tell the people, okay, so first of all, you're going to be separate. Uh, who's got a phone number? Okay, we need to take both of your phone numbers. Uh, in 24 hours, we've allocated funds because of the Petita Law. In 24 hours, we're going to call both your phone numbers, and we need to talk to both of you and uh, and talk to you. And then at that time, when they do that call, they're like, okay. If, uh, they assess the situation, and they might say, okay, in seven days, we're going to call you again or something like that. That's the Petita Law. It's going to get funded. So you have the additional people to call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'd be all for that. Yeah. I mean, contact. It would hopefully not be a police officer. like a No, city. like maybe a social worker. Of yeah. Sure. But then you ask yourself, what if they don't answer the phone? Well, then the police gets involved. They Early. do a, a, a manhunt for someone who didn't it's, respond it's a, to a it's, phone call? It's a yellow flag, at least, right? Because but it creates like, this whole other... Yeah, that, and that's why they funded it. That's why it's the Petito Law. And it's, you know, yeah. a certain amount of tax dollars, da-da-da. Yeah. But we save which one I'm life all, a year. Which, by, yeah, which, by the way, I'm all for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying... I, I realize it's tough, but, yeah. but, but at the same time, like, you know, maybe that is the answer for these gray areas is follow-up. And and maybe right. it's not that you immediately call the cops, but seriously, like like if a, you don't a case hear is back, a, right? A case is established. Yeah. Uh, essentially, a parole officer yeah. has it on your list. Yeah. And they periodically yeah. give an opportunity yeah. to both person to report. They weren't there that day, fine, but they haven't heard from them all week. Yeah. Just they hey, were supposed just, to check in. Yeah. Just just checking in and yeah. just to let you know that a case was opened. Yeah. But then you worry well. If you announce that, are people not going to call the police because they don't want this consequence of having people Who called the you? police? Though was it them? I thought it was no. Bi- it was people from the yeah. bystanders. But but often domestic violence perpetrators yeah. are called by you know the victims are the ones calling the police. Anyway, my I'm sure there are experts. That, I'm going to write it up. I'm going to propose it. <laughs> yeah, and you know maybe there are movements along those lines. But. Uh, uh, w- I'm not saying the police did it right. I'm just saying that uh, there's been a lot of anti-police sentiment around this case, and I'm sure. and I'm and that's not my sentiment. You can have that sentiment out there. That's not my sentiment. My sentiment is uh, Brian Laundry, if he murdered Gabby, is a horrible, despicable, psychopathic human being who did something horrible and despicable and completely avoidable. Just break up with her <laughs> like do it what the way everyone if you don't like her if things yeah. aren't working out just break up just break up you can yep. move on you, know, you never have to talk to her again um but he didn't uh he allegedly strangled her and killed her and and that takes a particular kind of human being and that's the person that we blame if brian murdered gabby brian did something horrible it's not Gabby's fault. How could she have known? 
you know, even if he was controlling and violent up until that point, how could she have known he was going to strangle her to death like soon after that? Yeah. So, you know, it's a rare occurrence. It's not rare enough. It's common enough. At least domestic violence is common enough. Um, can we change our practices? Um, I think we should. I think there are all sorts of police calls where police should be the support to the other professional. Yeah. When there's a mental health call and there's no weapons, you know, there's not a report of the person right. suffering from schizophrenia yeah. having, there's no gun involved. Like why is a police <laughs> officer the one, you know, it is funny that, you know, like if someone's like been injured, you send an ambulance, right? Right. If someone, if there's a and, fire, and any other <laughs> emergency, yeah. the police send the respond. appropriate. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, how about you send someone who's specialized and, and doesn't it cost as much, you know, police officers, are, they're expensive. You send a, you know, 50K a year social worker yeah. to talk to Gabby and Brian. They can spend their time. They could maybe spend four hours just really make, you know, getting. Because the thing is, it's like Gabby was activated. If you got her to calm down, maybe she would have been more, you know, disclosing or something and it could have saved her life. Anyway. Yeah. But the anonymous patient had a question. In the Dr. Phil interview with Gabby Petito's father, the father mentions that he never called Brian Laundrie by his real name. So this is Gabby's dad. What? So Gabby, wow. Gabby's dad always called Brian a feminine name, Brianna. What? Yeah. As uh, a put-down? Th- yeah, as a put-down. Because uh, Brian externally isn't the most macho dude. You know what I mean? Yeah. And... I think that's why. So this and, is, and was this his dad or was this her dad? This is her dad. Her dad. So Gabby's dad. Always made fun of him. Always made fun of him, calling him Brianna. What? N- never called him by his real name. Never that's ca- so disrespectful. Yeah. And so. So bizarre. Anonymous patron says, my gut reaction was, ew, cringe. But then also, wow, isn't that toxic masculinity? Do you think there's a link in general between daughters being raised by fathers that engage in toxic masculinity and then the daughter choosing an abusive or toxically masculine partner. Berto, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've experienced in my own life, and we've certainly all heard about the pattern, but I, I mean, I've experienced it personally that uh, subconsciously, for some reason, I have been attracted to people that have some of the same flaws that mo- both my dad and my mom had. <laughs> both, you know, when I'm choosing guy friends as well as girlfriends. <laughs> it's not 100%, and, you know, but... There seems that something there, and I guess for me it felt familiar, and probably to some level, like my subconscious mind goes, "There's something familiar about this," and I feel at home. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, famous patron Natasha from California. We know Natasha. Mm, yeah, we, we well, met her in person. To, yeah, she came to uh, shows. She says, "I started a job that I'm excited about." And the people I work with are very vocal about how the government shouldn't be able to require vaccines. And that during elections, Democrats were going to close the polls early to rig the election, etc. So these are people she's working with now. Do you have any advice? But she's in California, so it's like, I wonder what kind of job (laughs) this is. Do you have any advice for someone who identifies with an outgroup among their coworkers? So she's like, I'm definitely of the outgroup that they've identified. It seems everyone is super right-wing, pro-conspiracy, and I'm trying not to come off as condescending when asked about my opinion. 
But like one dude swore the climate conspiracy was to get more people onto the government controlled public transport so they'd have more control overall. What am I supposed to say about this? What do I do about this? LOL. Berto, what do you think? I only have a couple thoughts. One is, uh, if it were me, I would give it one good college try to see if there was any inroads with at least some of the folk. Uh, with the caveat that it's really dangerous to talk politics at work and things like that. So I would try to steer it in, in directions that were a little... Dangerous, what do you mean? Uh, well, because you can you can run afoul of HR easily, you know, of, of human resources, because you can easily get into all sorts of protected class discussions, which is right. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying that it's right that we have protected classes and that we have things that we shouldn't be able to discriminate about at work and stuff. So if you start saying like, uh, well, I mean, I just think all Republican voters are idiots or something, you know, like that, that's going to be a problem. But so I wouldn't do that, right? I would just try to have a conversation about specific issues. And if, if I feel like I could make a positive impact, then I might stick around. Otherwise, I would probably not stick around. What do you mean? You wouldn't work there? Yeah. Oh. Well, what if she needs the job? What, what? Yeah, well, that's tough, right? I mean, I get it. If you need a job, you need a job. I'm just saying that you spend most of your waking adult life at your job. And if it's going to be stressful and constantly like depressing and mind... But if she mind, had to stay, what, what should she do? Well, if you have to stay, I would say focus on the work. Focus your conversations on the work. Uh, try to redirect things to the work. Set a good example. And set a good example for the people they loathe. I mean, you know, show them that you're actually one of those others and you're fine and you're a good worker and you're yeah. a good co-worker. Yeah, agree. Um, but I totally get it. Because yeah. on one hand, it's like, and I've never been in that situation because I live in Seattle and I work with therapists. So yeah. I've never been in a scenario. Well, I have in a in social groups there's mm-hmm. there's there was one social group where i was definitely like whoa what is happening right here you know people using the n-word mm-hmm. white people using the n-word police officers using the n-word yeah and i'm like what do i do you know and i'm yeah. a i'm a outspoken podcaster i should say something and right and i didn't say much and so I don't, you know, I, I don't know the answer to this famous patron, Natasha. On one hand, the right thing to do is to say something, but I don't know. Because to to what end? What happens if you say something? Like, does it do any good to say anything? I think what Berto's talking, you know, the safe road is to lead by, you know, say, hey, you know, I'm one of those people you're talking about, but, I, you know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to argue with you because I don't see any point in that, and, and right. ho- hopefully you'll rub off on them. I mean, I did this. I did this with my uh, with one of my relatives who is very far right and um, you know very much into the conspiracies, and I made it clear that I hold a lot of the stances that they think are both illogical, but more importantly, that they are sort of satanic and in league with communists and stuff. Um, but then proceeded to kind of give my perspective why I hold those ideas and from a place of like well I'm empathetic to these situations and here's why I believe these things and I I, I, I like to believe that made a little bit of a good in that person's mind that okay well it's this is someone I know they're clearly not a bad person paradoxically they hold these views that I thought only these weird demons hold and I think that's got to 
Because if you start having more and more of those, at some point your brain's going to have to conclude that maybe you're not 100% right about believing that everyone who holds those views is a demon. Right. Patron Christina had a simpler, similar question. She's from Olympia. She says, what is the psychology behind being reluctant to take preventative measures such as a free vaccine while being enthusiastic about taking costly experimental treatments once one is sick? Berto, what do you think? Well, I think in this case, there was a confluence of things. As we know, even before all this, there was an anti-vaxxer movement. And ironically, a lot of them were sort of on the new AG left uh, because of trying to be more natural and not trying to ingest chemicals and things like that. Uh, That certainly seeded the ground for some of these questions. But there was a huge political component to this where essentially people were manipulated into believing that taking the vaccine was... Uh, was one side of an aisle and not taking it was the other side. Right. The, there are politicians, and I won't name names, you, you know who I'm talking about, who know very astutely that to stay in power, you must get votes. And to get votes, you must have people um, motivated. And to get people motivated, you got to make them afraid and you got to make them angry. You need an enemy. And... The way you do that, if you can't find one, as in like World War II when you got the Nazis, you make stuff up and you uh, uh, accentuate differences and you um, misinform that because it automatically, you know, it'd be like, let me just make something up like Dr. Seuss-ish. You just say like, hey, if... You want to succeed in life, you have to get a star in your belly. And that seems to be kind of the dominant, you know, narrative and, and discourse. And your your opponents have already come out and said, yes, I'm pro star. Well, even if the star, you don't even really care about star or no star. But if you're really good, you will go. That's government control or the star people. They're just trying to take away your guns or something. And you appeal to the non-star people and you just accentuate, accentuate, accentuate. Because if you can keep them angry and threatened and upset and then you say, and I have the answer. There's a threat and I have the answer. They're trying to control you and I have the answer. They're trying to control your brain with chips and I have the answer. They're trying to, uh, you know, kill your children with this thing, and I have the answer. I am your champion of a problem that I created and convinced you is there. Yep. And that's what happened, which yeah. I, I don't know. I think I talked about this before. When, when the pandemic first started, and I feel like I have a pretty good, you know, finger on the pulse of politics or at least general things in this country, uh, you know, I'm not super into it, but I hear enough that when the pandemic started, I was like, thank God, this is not a political thing. Yeah. Trump, <laughs> Trump, to my knowledge, has never talked about this before. Um, we are going to have a bipartisan effort to save uh, Americans. And I, and I thought this is going to be great because health <laughs> is not a politicized thing. You know, when you have a broken leg, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, you go to the hospital. When you have cancer, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, you go to a cancer specialist. When you have a pandemic, 
This will not be politicized. You will just listen to the epidemiologist, Dr. Fauci, and you'll do what they say. This is going to be great. We are going to transcend American ridiculous bipartisan politics. I I had that thing because I can't believe you did man. because there was no <laughs> indication otherwise at the beginning. Oh, there was though. Like the first thing was like, well, the, we've overcome it. When he said, two that's, cases, but that's and, when he started talking. I'm yeah, talking yeah. about in February. Oh, sure, sure, sure. When we first started hearing about sure. the possibility of it coming sure, to sure. our shores, sure. I was like, this will be great, you know. And I knew about. And the other thing was was when Ebola came out during Obama's administration, the Republicans in Fox News were angry at Obama for not for not doing enough. Right, right, right. Or, wait, what were they angry about? They yeah, because they let it in the country, remember? Right, right, right. They were like, there's yeah. one person. Yeah. And, and, and I was like, okay, so Fox News is pro-vaccine. They're pro-science. They're pro-reaction. And, of course, the Democrats are pro-reaction. We're going to win. <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> and out of nowhere, he just invented a problem that yeah, did not exist. <laughs> if you polled Republicans before, you know, February of, of 2020, I'm guessing you wouldn't see, I, I'm guessing you would see more adherence to vaccines or at least more adherence to, like, um, authority in the medical community than you would on the left. The left was right. known for their anti-vax attitudes. Well, the irony is that had had the person in power recognized and listened, because I'm sure people were telling him this, that actually this is how I stay in power for four more years. Because I didn't create this problem, and yeah. yet I'm going to do the best I can at managing it. Right. And who's going to... Even I was... when I, Look, when I saw his turnaround momentarily, briefly... Briefly, he turned around and said, okay, fine, maybe it's a problem, but look, we're going to do vaccines, we're going to do this. It lasted for like 10 seconds, but when that happened, I was like, okay. And then I was even thinking, oh, right. man, this right. is going to get him the next four years. It's the George W. Bush. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Democrats hated him. Right. But then at 9-11, they loved him yeah. because he stood up and right. he said, we're going to get through this. and. Everyone believed him. Right. And, and then he just, and, and then he invaded Iraq and then yeah. they hated him. You know? And ironically, no. And so it's too bad because what would have been best for them to stay in power would have also been best for the country. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it wouldn't be owning the libs, Berto. Yeah, I know. Um, other factors are general distrust in government, scientists, liberals, news. But that's really both sides of the aisle that... There's distrust of scientists and the government. Obviously, echo chambers is another factor. You know, Facebook knows the same thing that, you know, politicians do that are trying to get power. Facebook knows that, you know, like one of the things that I found for me is that um, when politics were scary to me, I watched a lot of Stephen Colbert. Mm hmm. Now that politics are not as scary to me, I don't watch any Stephen Gobert. Mm. So Facebook, the algorithm knows this, that when you're scared, you check and you share and you post and you read. When you're not scared, you know, you just kind of scroll through and you're, yeah. you know, you move on to other apps. Yeah. And so the algorithm knows that if it can make you afraid of anything, even if it's not true then they get more advertising dollars. Also, I think Americans and maybe humans in general don't like being told what to do. And when you tell people, look, you got to get a vaccine, I think there's this automatic 
response of like, you can't tell me what to do. And, <laughs> and, and I don't think that helps. But I do think there is something, uh, something in the United States uh, water <laughs> that ex- exacerbates that. I, I don't. It might be true in other countries it's, too. It absolutely is true in other countries. But I have seen it, for example, where I come from, that it manifests differently. You know, because yeah. it's like now, granted, same things do happen, but I don't know. Like other, I think in other societies, there's not as much yeah. luxury. Well, you're right. You know? Not only that luxury, but also just a, a general conformity. Australia is similar to the United States culturally yeah. in this way. And you see a similar, maybe not as much, but a, a right. similar problem. Um, the other thing is, is that if you're a marketer and you are trying to sell something and you're a YouTuber and you want clicks, you're and you know that if you whip up, you know... If you're a YouTuber and you're like, yeah, vaccines work, T- get your vax, get your vaccine, you're not going to get any clicks. Boring. <laughs> yeah. But if you say, ivermectin works and I've tried it and the government doesn't want you to know, you're going to get clicks. Yeah. Here's like the 10 top secrets that no one wants you to know. Right. Also, I think there's a fear of needles or injections that is at play with some um, oh, vaccine sure. hesitancy. Uh, if you would have were around the clock... Um, 10 years for me, I would have had serious fear about, I would have still got it, but I would have been like, I've gotten over my fear of needles. But monoclonal antibodies are fine, right? Which is an infusion. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, there are people who believe that God is the answer and that science is not. And Oh, speaking of that one, that's what is um, concerning me lately because now I started hearing the following rhetoric about climate change not to veer too far off topic but uh, which was uh, God wouldn't warm the earth if he didn't have a plan actually it's worse it's okay fine so maybe it's changing and maybe even humans have something to do with it but it is the end times right (laughs) yeah (laughs) great Um, the other problem now, I'm not saying you can't believe in God. I'm just saying you can't drive yourself off. You can't drive you and your family off a cliff and, and our, say, like, well God, well, God will, you know, God yeah. will save me. Um, or God must want, if, if, if I want to drive off the cliff, it's God because, must yeah. have made me want to jump off this cliff. That's not how God wants you to operate. <laughs> God, in all of the wisdom of religious people, they will say, God doesn't, God gives you the choice. In fact, that's right pretty key in the Christian faith is that free will is key. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't explain away evil. Evil is explained away because of free will. Right. So it's pretty clear it's evil to pollute the planet and, and kill uh, several species and displace many people and uh, create massive problems for our grandkids. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. The, 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 this modern uh, televangelist kind of ideology of... Riches are fine, and excess is fine, abundance is fine, and all the traditional things that, you know, that seem that Jesus said. great are, like, horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus literally said that a rich man would have, an, uh, uh, that a camel can pass through the head of a needle more easily than a rich man can enter heaven. Um, I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. I, so I sent... Again, this relative that I, I I have that I debate with sometimes about these topics, they were sending me some articles about 
how communistic everyone is right now and everyone's a communist, all these things. And I wrote back and I said, look, I, I happen to not... If, if by communistic you mean like cooperative? <laughs> well, I was like, I'm not a communist. I don't believe that system has been proven to work. It doesn't seem to work for humans. However, I'm going to quote a couple passages from the Bible, yeah. from the New Testament, that are 100% communism. Well, it's like you're supposed to bring all your sell your land sharing bring or actually says, literally communism. sell all your possessions bring them to the apostles and the apostles will divvy them up as everyone has need yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you know anyway i we're getting a little further out of field but the, the the last point i'll make that is a huge reason why people are vaccine resistant is because they don't understand statistics and you know it's sort of like playing the lotto. It's stupid to play the lotto, especially if you think you're going to win. If you're like, I'm going to play the lotto and I know I'm going to lose, but what if I won? That'd be kind of fun. You know, a dollar a week is just a little kind of fun thing I do. But you don't die when you play the lotto. <laughs> the people play the lotto kind of thinking, but I might win. Yeah. And it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> I'm pretty Someone's sure. Someone's got to win. Someone's got to win, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's literally like one in 20 billion or right. one in 20 million chance that you're going to win. It's, you know, I, I'm going to say, no, you're not going to win. But it's definitely the, the, I, the in point you is in right. The, in the same way that if you say someone had a serious complication from the vaccine, right. but you've, you've administered the vaccine to half a billion people, essentially your risk of having a serious complication is zero. Yeah, yeah. And, but they, but because they don't understand statistics, they hear about one person having a problem. They think they're 50% likely to have a problem. Well, this is the thing I really didn't get. Cause I, I was watching a YouTube video from two scientists. These are scientists. One of them was an ex professor at a university who, you know, doesn't teach anymore, but was, and the other one is an act. Well, I don't know if he's still active, but was apparently one of the originators of the MRNA technology. No longer works in that field, but that was funny. Okay. And they were having this discussion. And the video was titled, like, the risks with the vaccines, the mRNA vaccines. But when he got to the, the details, because I'm re ready to see some studies, some graphs, literally it was like, my gardener, I was like, wait, wh what? And all their examples were, I heard yeah. my gardener, my thing. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, we, we study this thing, this sort of thing. And just because someone had an illness after a vaccine doesn't mean the vaccine caused it. You know what I mean? People have problems crop up all the time. And it doesn't necessarily mean. And what we need are studies, which we've done throughout this whole time, and discovered that the difference between the control group and the people who get the vaccine is, you know, in terms of, complications extremely low like lower than i think anyone ever could have predicted honestly you know another stat that people are getting hung up on uh, anti-vax people and republicans will not all republicans some will point to is they'll say you know half of the hospitalizations are people who are vaccinated birdo did you know that wow that's a lot <laughs> so that's actually a slightly true stat um and they're like well so there's how many no, people have been vaccinated? Right. <laughs> so if ninety percent of people or eighty percent of people have been vaccinated, <laughs> right? Then uh, and ten. So you so say so you have you would expect ninety percent of hospitalizations to be right. <laughs> so so you have um, 
so you have 80 people who are vaccinated, 20 people who have it. Right. And you have, you have 20 people who are in the hospital. Uh, 10 have been vaccinated and 10 have not. So you're 50% likely to be hospitalized if you're not vaccinated. And you're one in eight, yeah, yeah. like, or, you know, what is that? 12% likely to go to hospital right. if you are vaccinated. So it's these kind of stats that people just don't understand. You, you understand that because you understand math, but most well, people right. don't. But also that there's something that I guess I'm just more naive, but I don't think of it that way, which is, wait a minute, rewind for a second. We are now accepting a lot of premises, which I don't accept. For example... I, I'm being asked to accept that the that the virus in the first place is some sort of mischievous plot. Okay, I, I don't accept that yet. Second, I'm I'm being forced to accept that the vaccine is some plot as well. I don't accept that. And like you go down the line, by the time we're debating about the hospitalizations, because if we didn't have all those premises, right. we would just be like, hey, we're in this together. It's a it's a problem. Science isn't perfect. We're all trying to do the best we can. Yeah. Well, we when wish we had a magic wand. Yeah, but when you're talking to someone who literally believes that Bill Gates put right. a made-up technology that doesn't exist right. for a completely ridiculous reasons that aren't necessary since everyone has a tracking device in their phone. Right. Um, when they're dealing on that level, you're just like, well, you just live in a completely different reality and we're yeah. never going to see eye to eye. Yeah. All right, let's take a break, Birdo. Let's calm down. And when we get back, let's answer some more emails. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. I thought we'd do an OPP. OPP. An old patron praise. These people became patrons in May of 2019 and have remained patrons. Loyal. Wow. Loyal patrons. Those are our fa- Those are our favorite patrons. People who are loyal and dedicated to the cause. Because, you know, just signing up for one month, it's nice. It's, it's you know, nice. It's, it's great. It's better than nothing. But just to be a, you know, continuing contributor oh, yeah. is like the pinnacle. Oh, yeah. You got to be unquestionably loyal. Yeah. So <laughs> we have uh, Tanya from NL. What do you Ooh, think? NL. What do you think? NL, NL country code. New Louisiana. Louisiana. <laughs> uh, let's see. It is the Netherlands. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And we have Wendy from Fort Wayne, Indiana. We have Katie from San Francisco. We mm. have Sarah from Oakdale, California. We have nice. Daisy from God knows where. We have Yusuf from Everett, Washington. Oh, right around north the corner. Of here. Yeah, I, I was a ice cream man in Everett, Washington. We have Heather from Raleigh, North Carolina. We have Cynthia from Chicago. Nice. We have Shannon from Sussex Inlet, New South Wales, Australia. Whoa. We have Rosemary from God knows where. We have Scott from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Is that no. Sheboygan? I don't know. Uh, Sheboygan? Tamsin from God knows where. Anton from Germany. Cameron from Yorba Linda, California. Oh, Yerba Linda. Is he a Seventh-day Adventist? Because they, they live really long lives. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, thank you all for becoming pages. Also, uh, Podwife Stacy wants me to remind everyone to make sure on Patreon that you make sure that the email that you list on Patreon, you actually check because every once in a while we have to reach out to you to send you swag or something like that. Also, if you sign up for upper tier to make sure that you opt in for swag, meaning that you opt in to have your address included so that we can send you swag. And if you're not an upper tier patron, become one so we can send you swag. And you can also be a very special person. Also, if you want to become an annual patron, that would also be very helpful. All right. Um, 
Let's talk about this, Berto. Anonymous page, and she writes, How do you know if you have romantic feelings for a friend? I have a friend of the opposite sex that I have always had a very deep connection with. He has been my best friend for many years, and I've always felt confused when it comes to my feelings for him. It feels like our time together is more special than it is with my other friends. I find myself thinking about what life would be like if we became a couple. However, I can't imagine being intimate with him physically. I'm repulsed by him to some extent. I've also not really felt attracted to him, even though I think he is an attractive guy. I, How do I know if I have romantic feelings for him, though, Berto? What do you think? That is a fascinating email. I was following along until the repulsion, the repulsion part caught me off guard. This is something that it's hard for me to relate to. For example, the idea that I would look at someone and be like, and then think I am repulsed by them, physically, like you know, sexually. And I wonder what what's there. Well, like, maybe downgrade it to just I just would rather not. But the have word to. repulsed is so strong. So I'm I'm wondering, is this because I was I was ready to answer? Yeah, it sounds like you have romantic feelings. Really? But when, when I got to that point, I'm like, oh. But she says. I'm not attracted to him. That's after the repulsion. Yeah. So it's when I got to the repulsion, I was like, oh, oh okay. But if you heard I'm not attracted to him, it would be the same for you? Well, it's it's different because she, uh, she, she says, I, I'm not attracted to him, although he is attractive. Yeah, I'm not yeah. attracted to him, but he is attractive. So I'm like, okay, well, there's possibility there. Maybe it's more of like, I don't think I'm attracted to him. But if if you say... Hey, uh, maybe I should go out with this person. Although I'm repulsed sexually, but like that's you probably don't want to, right? You know. So I guess I would say maybe it's more of uh, they find companionship with this person. Yeah. But I feel like if they started off on that foot for a romantic relationship, it's unfair to the other person because I don't think anyone wants to be in a re- in a romantic relationship where the other person feels repulsed by the or even just not attracted. Yeah. Yeah. I. I don't think I've ever thought about it this way, but I, I'm going to play with this way of thinking about it, which is that we have this dichotomy. You're either romantically interested in someone and sexually along with that, or you're not. When in reality, what it sounds to me an honest patron is that you, because you say like, I feel like our time together is more special than it is with others. So there could be a, a streak of romance there, but not, but non-sexual. And in a way that's different than your other friends. Like with your other friends, you might be very close. You might be very vulnerable. But it's not – it doesn't have that that butterflies-y feeling yeah. of, of romance or that that kind of special – I don't know how to describe it, but that – you know, je ne sais quoi. Yeah, that sort of – that lovey feeling of like I, I want to – I want to hug this person. I want yeah. to – I want them to like me, you know, a, a crush, if you will. Uh, um, but it's non-sexual. You know, I, I think that that's what it sounds like to me. And I'll point out that some people are asexual, meaning they fall in love with someone, but they do not want to have sex with them. Yeah. So just because you don't want to have sex with him doesn't mean there isn't some romance involved. What does that mean? You know, I don't know. But... Yeah. Uh, uh, does it sound advisable to to date him? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. One, because you're probably both shooting yourself in the foot, and there's nothing wrong with having a you know a friend for the rest of your life that you have a streak of romance with, but you but you never 
it never dips into cheating, if you will, you know, in terms of what your partner would define it as. And if you date and it goes badly, you might never be a friend with them again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Berto, patron Maria from Italy, wrote in and said, as a fellow Beatles super fan, I'd love to I'd love to hear your opinion about Ringo Starr. Whenever he's mentioned in popular discourse, people always seem to highlight the fact that he isn't a good drummer. However, I've heard seasoned drummers mention that this is a myth and that his skills are actually impressive. What are your thoughts on this, Berto? Yeah, so it's it's it, this one's always a funny one. First of all, I love Ringo. Um, some things to keep in mind. Was the Beatles a prog rock band like uh, Yes or Rush or something? No. And so most of those bands have instrumentalists in them that would absolutely play circles technically around all the Beatles, including Paul McCartney. Uh, Paul McCartney doesn't even read music. He doesn't even barely knows music theory. Like when he's explaining, look, I love Paul. Paul's a genius musically, like a savant. But when he's explaining like some of his realizations, I'm like, yeah, I learned that in first grade, you know, but it's okay. He's a genius. However, Ringo was an extremely solid musician who performed on first takes that you're, you hear a lot of the first takes on albums, like Twist and Shout was one take, you know. Those are one takes. Now, um, Ringo was also a replacement. Like they, they had other drummers, and then Ringo was already in another successful band. Not successful. Are you sure role. he played on Twist and Shout? Uh, I know, I know that there was the other guy for Please Please Me, but not the whole album. Yeah. But what, even if he didn't play for Twist and Shout, their second album was mostly a live album as well. Right. So back then they didn't have multi track. Right. Like so, Ringo could play. He could play solidly. Was very reliable and had very appropriate parts uh very musical too and i know paul helped him a bit but he was a musical guy and the reason a lot of these drummers give him credit is because getting in a studio and laying down a solid track is hard mm-hmm. and doing it consistently and and um they they admire that about it and also when you hear some of the best beatles songs the the rhythm is a huge part of it yeah so yeah there are songs um so let me back up. This debate has always been, I thought, perpetrated by non-musicians because there's this... You look at the Beatles, especially back in the day. I don't know about people today, but you looked at the Beatles and like, these are th- three artists that could have fronted their own bands and did later yeah. on and been super successful. Ringo, or, uh, you know, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, particularly Paul and John early on. They could have been in different bands and had several number one hits. Right. They were geniuses and you know, and good at their instruments, good singers, good writers, you know, everything. And then then you got Ringo, who who wrote Octopus's Garden, which is one of my least favorite Beatles songs. <laughs> and, you know, and he I'm sure wouldn't say that he's a genius songwriter, nope. you know what I mean? So he's not trying to act like anything. But I think there was this temptation to look at the band and be like, look at these, you know, gods and then Ringo. And and back in the day, because I think a lot of this discourse was developed in the 70s. At the time, again, you had Neil Peart and you had the Yes Drummer. And the Yes Drummer actually lives, actually lived close to you in Eastgate. Mm. People were listening to these other drummers and saying, oh, my God, Ringo is nothing like John Bonham or something. Right. And it it. And I was I was I was like, well, 
one, this was the 60s. Listen to other drummers of the 60s. Absolutely. Two, drumming isn't, you know, there are many different aspects of the art of drumming. And the thing that Ringo was so good at, as as you say, they were musical. The, yeah. the things that he played, there are uh, songs um, by the Beatles where you can just hear like a bar of the drums and know what song it is. And, and that's unique, like especially back then. Right. Listen to any Stone song, and I challenge you to just listen to the drum beat alone without anything else. And know what song And know immediately what song it is. Now, there are some classics, you know, like yeah. Satisfaction probably has a pretty noticeable drum beat. But in terms, or better yet, I could probably tell the song by looking at the notation of the drums. You look at the notation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You look at the notation of a Rolling Stone song. Right. Ninety percent of songs, it's just a straight four beat. Yeah. And and now, granted, look, neither you or I are drummers. I know. You know, we both have hit the drums, but we didn't study drumming. So I'm sure if someone knows drumming really well, they would point out all things. But here's the point: Paul McCartney is also not. You can't compare Paul to Joe Satriani or Eric Johnson or or Eric Clapton when it comes to guitar. Right. They're not the same thing. Well, even George Harrison and Eric Clapton. Exactly. Yeah. You but yeah. but these are different strengths. Ringo, you watch that Get Back documentary. He's a soldier. Yeah. He's there the whole time, always on. Yeah. And and, and look, Paul and John. They they especially Paul, right? He he was okay with crap, right? With mediocrity. No. Yeah. These guys had very high standards. Right. And <laughs> technically speaking, there have been studies that I don't know if it's real or not, but you'll hear people talk about how metronomic uh, Ringo was, yeah. how his sense of rhythm and tempo was so strong that it, and that can really elevate a song. Yeah, you know, these what, were not click tracks back then. <laughs> yeah. You know, you and I have played with a lot of drummers um, and... I've played with drummers that have terrible sense of time. Right. They can, you know, they can, like Chris Huber, for example, he, he's a, an amazing drummer. Like just, he's like Ringo in that he can write. Mm-hmm. Every song is different. Like you always, he never liked playing 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> and I loved that about him, but I hated the fact that he, his tempo shifted even within the same bar. <laughs> okay. He would, and, and I'm like, I'm like, Hubert, Huber, do you know that you're skipping an eighth note there? Like you're you're writing a a seven eighth um, bar there. Like it's prog rock. Are you want to do that? He's like, he's like, I am. Like he 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 just played by feel sure, so sure. much. Ringo played, uh, you know, well and very on time. Very on time. And there are certain songs when we can't play it because of copyright. Yeah. But I could play you songs where the drumming is so good and so creative and so unique and so enhancing to the song. And the song would be nothing if it wasn't for Ringo's drumming in those songs. Anyway. um, So yeah, anyone who says uh, that Ringo, and the other thing I'll say is to simplistically encapsulate Ringo of the Beatles in any sort of way, is very reductionistic. You could claim that Ringo, some of Ringo's parts were a little dumb or bad or that Ringo's style was off or something. But, you know, it's like looking at 
Jackson Pollock, for example, and going like, well, that's not real art. You know, it's just such a reductionistic, simplistic way of looking at art. You know yeah, I mean? like it, it really is different categories. None of the Beatles are good jazz musicians at all. Like zero percent, you know, uh, but they were able to play with Billy Preston and Billy Preston is someone who was an amazing musician in his own right. And was he arriving there and going like, oh, some mess. I can't play with y'all. No, they jammed perfectly well. Yeah. And so it's, yeah. Patron Amanda from Baltimore had another Beatles related question. I just want to say that your episode on the psychology of John Lennon completely changed my view of both him and the Beatles. Whoa, did that episode change my viewpoint? I never knew how tragic John Lennon's life was or many of the songs you mentioned throughout the episode. As you brought them up, I paused the podcast and listened to each one. Julia and Mother made mm. me cry. Yeah. I'm fascinated now and doing a bit of my own deep dive to learn more about the other members and the band as a whole. So thank you. Half of what I say is meaningless, but Let's I say it just to reach you. Listener Kiki from Denmark says, can you please talk about the phenomenon of main character energy? Thanks. Do you know main character energy? Main character energy? Yeah. So no? it's um, this concept that I will briefly define. It's not like a serious psychological concept. It's like an internet mm -hmm. colloquial concept. Basically, it's becoming the main character of your life, taking control of your life, focusing more oh, on yourself. Instead of an NPC energy. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, Berto, do you choose or are you just naturally main character energy? No, I mean, I, in fact, I've, I've, oft, I, I've felt at times that I was an NPC in my life and then I try not to be. I, I, I'm not saying I mostly feel as an NPC. I feel as a main character quite often, but... Um, when you feel like an NBC, what is that like? That feels like I don't have control and like I'm being affected by other factors and like I'm I'm not exercising. Like I put the controller down, <laughs> you know? Like what do you mean? I'm in an idle animation, you know? Do, 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 do. Yeah. Like, come on, we got to play the character. <laughs> like you're not sort of taking the bull by the horns or something? Well, literally that I am just sitting there watching... Life like twiddling by. my thumbs in an idle animation. Like going through the routine. Yeah. Not saying, I right. am going to do this now. I'm the main character. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Like if you zoom in in The, in the Sims uh, or in SimCity, let's say, there's a lot of little NPCs. You know, they drive this way, they da-da-da-da-da, and they go and they come and they... But I want to feel like the Godzilla crashing through the city. <laughs> you know... I'm surprised that you've ever felt like an NPC because I don't know if I've ever felt like an NPC in my own life. I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like other people are NPCs, you know, mm -hmm. but I have felt like other people are NPCs sometimes. Well, how so? Um, my narcissistic side or egotistic side sometimes feels like, well, this other person people? is an, this, I mean, I haven't used that terminology, but like this person is secondary to my story. Right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, but the thing I think about is I have this consistent personality trait of whenever I'm annoyed with something about my life, even if it's just right now, like I'm annoyed with what I'm sitting on or something, I immediately conspire to change mm. what's happening if I can, you know. Obviously, I've had jobs where, you know, I was literally a dishwasher at Denny's. <laughs> sure. It wasn't like I was enjoying myself. Sure. But... But there's that scene in the movie where the main character is at 
the dishwashing job. Well, but right, I would be sitting there washing dishes, going like, I am not going to be doing this for the rest of yeah. my life. Like, I, uh, this is, and it's a bit of a narcissistic notion of like I'm I, I consider myself special enough, right, to value my life enough that I'm not going to sit by and watch the years go by doing something that I don't want to do. That's right. And so I don't know if I've ever, and I'm a bit obsessive about this to the point where I don't think I've ever been the NPC in my own story. Yeah. Whereas I have, and cause I share your situation in that sense. Like I've been at McDonald's, I've been at the thing and it sucks because this sounds really conceited and everyone who works these jobs is like, okay, you asshole. No, no, no. But that, that's not my, well, that's I my point. <laughs> that's not my point. If that just wasn't the life for me, you know, if it was, then it, then well, it I wasn't the stopping point. Well, you, yeah. at the time it was, you were working that job. Yeah. And when I was working at McDonald's, I was working at McDonald's. I was doing a good job. Yeah. I was, and I guess along those lines, because I had many, I mean, I was a pizza driver. Yeah. I was a security guard for many years. I was a shoe salesman. I, I had a lot of, you know, not so fun jobs. But while I was even there, I would try to make it fun. You know, I would try to make it interesting or something for me. Well, and this is the part that I think it might require a little bit of a change in perspective because... I wonder if being the main character has to just do with upward mobility in our society or also how you interact with your family and how you impact those around you and how well you do whatever job it is, you know, stuff like that. And I think that that's something that I have come to appreciate more as I've gotten older, that I don't have to rule the world to be the main character in my story. Yeah. But I always felt like I did. Mm. And so I think when I felt like an NPC is when I'm like, how come I'm not ruling the world yet? Mm. That must mean I'm not the main character. Mm. Interesting. Whereas as I've gone older and I had kids too, I was like, oh, I see. Well, maybe in, in, in a way it's like, maybe my kid's the NPC, the, the main character and I'm the NPC. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, well, no, but there's maybe different ways in which this maybe isn't an action-packed kung fu video game. Mm. This might be a different kind of video game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I've... I've never felt like I was an action-packed movie character. I was always like a <laughs> a rarely seen, you know, film festival movie character. <laughs> um, last question. Listener Jasmine from Maine says, what inspired you to create a YouTube channel as a means of helping, helping and educate people? And do you think YouTube is a good way to share that info? End of email. Um I'll answer the question, and I have some questions for you, Berto, around this. I What inspired me was, I mean, it was a podcast slash YouTube channel 13 years ago. And there, I've said this story before, but I'll briefly touch upon the main influences. One was that I listened to a lot of podcasts at the time and was, like, blown away at the medium and how effective it was as a grassroots because this is before youtube really before youtube became a thing anyway it was a way in which you as just a regular person could reach the masses um in a very effective way you know there were blogs at the time but how do you get people to look at your blog if you have a podcast people can just listen passively as they're driving to work or something and and the podcast's the podcast landscape in 2008 was very different than it is now. I mean, now you got like 
Conan O'Brien. <laughs> but back then, it was like all very amateur, you know? Do you know what's hilarious? That when you asked me to do the podcast, in my mind, podcasts were old, like out. Like they weren't, they weren't trendy anymore. Yeah, like because I had known about podcasts for so long and not done one and always felt like, ah, I guess I should have done one of those things. By the time you asked me, I was like, oh, that's quaint podcast. Well, I guess. I had no idea that it, it hadn't even begun. Yeah. In my mind, it was like, yo, that's that old thing that I never participated in. Right. It's bizarre. And it's because like, since I was very into tech, like, it's kind of like when the internet first came out. I think most of the world didn't hear about it for five years. Yeah. They might have heard about it, but they didn't really like use so it. So I think the year 2000 is when it really started like. Yeah. But I, you know, I started with it in 95. And so by the year 2000, I was like, oh, yeah, this is. But yet it hadn't even really begun. Right. Like Google had just started. You know, it's like. <laughs> yeah. So that was one was that I was very obsessed with uh, not only podcasts, but also books on tape and. And so whenever I get really interested in something, I'm like, what if I did that? You know, Uh, like that's why I became a musician in high school because I was like, I loved music. And I was like, what if I became a musician? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so that was one. Another one was I actually went to lunch with a friend who was a media person and he was on TV occasionally talking about various different things. And well, I'll tell you what he was talking about. He's talking about praying away the gay. Um, oh, and, and, conver- and conversion therapy, um, which I would debate with him and tell him he was wrong and oh. he, w- he would try to uphold his opinions. But he's a good person that believes in a horrible thing that some people believe in. And I would try to convert him, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and always have. Um, he's not a super close friend, but anyway, he, he was in town and we met up and and I on my way to lunch with him, I had this thought of like, huh, I wonder if I should start a podcast. But it was, you know, just one of those fleeting ideas that just kind mm-hmm. of pop one of thousands a year that sort of pop in your head. And I mentioned it to him and he's like, and he's such a nice person and supportive person. He's like, Oh my God, you'd be so good at that. You mm-hmm. should totally do it. And I'm like, I'm like, really? Me? Are you just saying that? <laughs> and, 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 and I'm like, no, he's like, no, no, you totally should. And then he even checked in with me later, I think. And honestly, I don't know if I would have done it if it weren't for that kind of push. That's kind of prescient of that person to see that. I think he was just being nice, honestly. Okay, because because when you asked me to do it, there was no part of me that's, that thought that. Yeah. No part of me, even though I knew you, but I didn't, you know, maybe I didn't know you that long, but I, was, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, Kirk, that's a genius idea. And you'd be so perfect for it. Yeah. And 13 years from now, no, like not at all. <laughs> Oh, no, yeah. At the same time, I thought it was a fine idea. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The other thing that motivated me was in the podcast landscape, there were only three other podcasts. And so I thought if I had the worst psychology English speaking podcast, I would be the fourth best. (laughs) You'd be in the top five. (laughs) In the the world. Yeah. Um, And I thought at the very least, I could be a good sort of adjunct to these these other psychology podcasts because they weren't really talking about the things that I wanted to talk about. Um, anyway, another motivation is that I've always loved just creating things. You know, when I would record music, when I write in my journal, I just, I always like to document things. It just feels good to kind of 
create a record of like your life or something. Yeah. And as a therapist, I felt like so many things were happening in the therapy office as a professor, you know, so many, I, I felt like I just wanted a place to kind of put this permanent record of like what all these people are doing and around me. You yeah. know what I mean? And um, so that was another motivation. Another motivation was I had established my private practice and a typical full-time private practice is like 25 clients a week. Yeah. And once you get really good at the paperwork, it only takes you a couple of minutes. And so I would literally only be working 20 and I had a home office, so I didn't commute. Yeah. So I basically worked uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, like a regular job. And then Wednesday I'd have a half day. And then I had Thursday and Friday. I had, um, you know, half of Thursday and Friday off yeah. and Saturday and Sunday. So I had like half the week, essentially I just had like free time and I, and I didn't have anything else to do. And yeah. I just thought like, so any idea that came my way was, uh, you know, a possibility, mm. you know? And so that was another kind of, cause I, I wasn't teaching in Antioch at the time. Um, Another, and that was another factor was that I wasn't teaching any, you know, I, I quit yeah. for, for a brief time and I have an itch to teach <laughs> that wasn't being met. And I thought maybe the podcast. So another thing, I just thought it'd be fun to hang out with my friends, you know? And so I first asked Bob and he got shy and didn't want to do it. Then I asked you and then I asked Lita and yeah. then, then we were off doing it. But Berto, um, what inspired you to do it with me? Yeah, I mean, like I've said this before, essentially... And what inspired you to stick with it? Because you it. could have at any time... Bagged out. Well, let me ask you before you answer. <laughs> okay. Did you ever think, eh, I think I'm done? Because, you know, we've had other co-hosts who have backed out. Um, No, I don't think so. I, I think what would have happened, ironically, or if you had needed more of me, there were many times where I wouldn't have been able to provide it. Right. Like, if you're like, well, we need to do, like, a daily episode, I would have been like, I can't. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. And if you're like, well, I can only do it that way, I'm like, I'm sorry. But because that never so happened. So, you never thought, oh, because, you know, you would always have to drive to my place. and I don't think, I don't remember ever feeling that way. And the reason is because, A, the commitment. Yeah, the drive. Okay, I hate driving, to be honest. But it was never, we, we drove to practice in bands, you know. So, like, I kind of. In fact, I actually remember thinking that. I remember thinking, well, Kirk used to come over here all the time to practice. So, I'll return the favor. I'll come over there to do the podcast. Yeah. And um, I just thought to myself, well, this sounds fine. Like, it, it, it wasn't even like, this is a brilliant idea. I can't what, believe no it, one's thought about it. Was it appealing to think that, you know, a couple hundred people were listening and you could get your on stage jollies there was certainly that although at first since we knew that there wasn't i but okay, okay granted sure there was the the possibility like oh maybe this could become big that's yeah. cool right but even like the few hundred that were paying that attention. was fun that was fun and yeah. and to hear like oh they they wrote this email in and stuff that was definitely fun yeah and so that did feed my to little... me I, I felt like that was a motivation for you because as a musician at the level that we were right. usually at you would get no feedback. No. No one cared. No. You'd go on stage, you'd perform. <laughs> and you everyone, might get, you no might get would, like, hey, that was good. No one would be paying <laughs> attention. You know what I mean? Right. There's no feedback. So you're putting out all this effort and content and like you're getting nothing back or very little back. 
And then we had this podcast where it didn't require much effort from no, me. No, I didn't have to write songs and, and learn them and, and, and practice we, them. And, and we got feedback. Yeah. A little yeah. bit of feedback. Yeah. You know, because so like, that. Cause like uh, the analogy is if you had played a show and there were 200 people paying attention and one person actually was moved by it, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Yeah. Now, the other thing is I actually enjoyed it. Like those early days were enjoyable because yeah. remember though in fact it's great that it started the way it started I don't know if I would have felt the same way if we started just talking for five hours at a time <laughs> but because at first it was like we would go on these little adventures yeah. like, let's go to barbecue yeah if you didn't if you don't know the first six months of the podcast we did videos and we would go on location and I, I would spend a lot of time planning you know we're going to go to this therapist office and yeah. we're going to experience this kind of therapy and, and they're going to experiment on Birdo. And that hooked me in. Those yeah. were fun. Yeah. And by the time that we started doing fewer of them, I was sad, but at the same time, I was acclimated and I started getting some also therapy out of it because every time I would talk about myself and talk about my problems, it was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. This is somewhat therapeutic. Yeah. Um, and then when I started hearing from people saying, hey, I really appreciate that Birdo was honest and blah 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 and i've experienced similar things yeah i was like oh i might actually be doing some good yeah that's a huge that's a huge deal did you think that you'd be doing it for this long i guess not i guess if someone had cornered me and like hey how long do you think you'll do this probably would have said i don't know a couple of years yeah you know? really maybe why would you have because thought... my bands had lasted one to two years right i think i always knew or suspected that I would be doing this a long, long time. I don't think I ever thought, well, I'll probably get tired of this. Because it, it required, when no one was listening <laughs> at the beginning, especially once I switched to audio, it required not that much effort, you know? Yeah. Uh, it required effort, for sure. But it was, if I wanted to kind of phone it in and just gab about something, I you could. still could do that. And, and and if people were complaining, it'd be like, well, you're not paying for it. So yeah, it's free. It's free on the internet. And so I think I just always knew that. I think I just always knew that. And, well, and taking, I, taking an episode down wasn't that painful in that sense. Like, right. You if didn't spend $10,000 on a video production. It's like, right. all right. The other thing um, was I, I always suspected that it would take off. Um, I don't know if that was delusional, <laughs> you know, or narcissism or something, but I always had this feeling like if it was always just the faith of, yeah. if we reach, an, if we, if enough people hear about, cause this would happen, you know, like we'd be seven years into the podcast and someone would discover us and they'd be like, how come it took me so long? Yeah, to where find has it? this been all my yeah. life? And I always knew like, we would appeal to less than 1% of the internet populace. But I knew that for those people, we would appeal. Well, and that was something that I didn't understand when we started and for a long time, that you can, you can appeal to a niche. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. I never thought of things that way. I always thought I got to come up with my big universe changing idea so I can sell a billion copies of something. Yeah. Well, because as a podcast, because you don't listen to podcasts very much. I listen to YouTube, but not strictly podcasts. Yeah. And, and I mean, do you listen to any YouTube channels where you're just like, 
I can't live unless I watch that channel as soon as that episode comes out. I have had those, yes. Okay. So with, you know, podcasts, a lot of times it's that way. Once you become really loyal to, it becomes like you just can't live with yourself. It's like, I got to, yeah, you know. Well, I've had my, I've had some subscriptions for since 2008, you know. And you listen to every single episode? The one, the, there are ones that yes, because uh, every episode matters. There are some that are like topical. So if I miss one, it was just that week's news. So yeah. it's like not that important. Yeah. So I knew as a consumer of podcasts that I was definitely one of a few thousand loyal people to this podcast. You know, like yeah. I, I knew that this wasn't a big thing, but I knew for me and my com- my comrades who loved this podcast, this was like a huge highlight to our week. Yeah. And I was like, we just have to find those people. But if we're so small, we'll never find our people, you know? And, uh, but you know, you just grind away for 13 years. Eventually you find your people. Yeah. Well, it's like, I was, I was listening to a documentary about, uh, Ray William Johnson. It was one of the early super big YouTubers. And it was describing his early days. Like, Oh, and then he went, from 200 listeners to 500 listeners. Yeah. And that was a huge deal. And then when he hit like like 100,000 back then, he was like number two on the, on the YouTube. You know? Right, <laughs> right, like, right. Yeah. yeah, I remember when a YouTube video got a million views. Right. It was like, wow. Do you remember in the early days you would get the download stats and it looked like we had like millions of listeners. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was well, like, it was, no, we did not have millions of listeners. It was, um, the, the first thing was wrong. And then eventually though, it was, um, like the number, the number was rep- representative if someone at least touched the website. So it wasn't necessarily like loyal listeners or even, yeah. they might not even have listened to an episode, right. but they came to our website. Right. And then later we actually like, oh, okay, no, these are the, People had downloaded an MP3 from our website, you know. Right. Yeah, I was. I just remember being you coming and telling you like, unless I'm reading this wrong, we have five hundred thousand loyal, uh, you know, customers. Oh, active, it was um, active users. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> five hundred thousand. It was some really high number, and I was like, whoa, you know. And that really was the wind beneath our wings when we probably had 500 people no it was so yeah no it was it was definitely more than that because the the mp3 stats started being in the thousands you know yeah but it's just i'm telling you like right now our podcast is pretty big yeah yeah we have and the the stats are definitely more reliable now yeah and we have i think fifty thousand downloads a week Right. And I th- and we have five episodes. So you figure... But this was looking at a whole year, everyone who came to our site. Yeah. So that's why it was so inflated. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, yeah. it the way it was reported, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like we had hundreds of thousands of loyal... And it felt good. <laughs> yeah. When in reality... It was a it, few hundred. Yeah. Yeah. If we, yeah. If we regress the number back yeah. in time, it was probably, yeah, a couple hundred people. But you know, it's it was still a big deal. A couple hundred loyal people. Well, and and again, like getting a website that has a hundred thousand hits back then when we had zero marketing, 
Yeah. Was still something. Like, it's hard to get people to come to a website. Yeah. How do they know your website? Well, the way people <laughs> would discover us back then is they would, on their on iTunes, they would type in psychology podcasts and yeah. we would come up. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. All you out there, you know, if you want to start your own podcast or YouTube channel, I highly recommend it because it will definitely give you your narcissistic supply. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.